I don't know if he's waiting for me or not, but I was waiting for them to stay. It, that was lingering in my mind. I, uh, I look forward to heaven with the angels singing. This reminded me of what that's going to be like. It's a real privilege for Gail and I to be with you this morning. I uh, have not been president for very long, but I have been president long enough to know something. I'm not the leader of this conference. God is. I hold a title and a position, but God is a leader. I don't own myself, so how could I be a leader of anything? God is your leader. He leads this church. He leads this conference. He leads this union. He leads this division. And he leads this general conference. I, uh, there are two things that drive me as a president. The first thing is that I love the Lord with all my heart. And I want to see him soon. And I want to be faithful to him in everything that I do. And the second thing is that I have a sense of a need for unity as I've never had before. I'm not talking about the unity that comes when a bunch of people come together and they agree on some points of doctrine. I'm talking about a unity that can only come with a heart that is connected with Christ. Because if you're connected to Christ and I'm connected to Christ and we're connected to the same source, we will be unified. We don't have to work at it. And that's what I want more than anything, is to be one with Christ even as he said I could be. title of the sermon this morning is Who Are You? But it's not targeted at what is your name. Who are you in relationship to that uniform that comes from God? I want to invite you to bow your heads as we start our time together. Father in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit. You have a message that you want to reach to our hearts, and I don't want to get in the way. You don't need me. You can speak an individual message to each person personalized for what they need. But somehow, Father, you choose to bless us corporately too. So, Lord, may we hear that word from you that Jesus might be honored and glorified. Father, when we leave this place, may we look back and say, surely the Lord was in this place. May we take steps closer to you as a result of our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I know that... uh, 
We read this message from Jesus this morning in our in our scripture reading, responsive reading. It's a message that Jesus is sending to the Laodicean church. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we know exactly who that Laodicean church is. It's the people who were standing, who claimed to be gods just before he comes. That's us included. And he's sending a message to us out of love. But he's telling us, I, I don't want you just to acknowledge that you are sinners and not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. All of us know that we're sinners. But is it possible that we have become so accustomed to living in a sin-filled world that we're okay with just going ahead and making a mistake here or there, call it sin, asking Jesus to forgive us and continue to live? Have we come to the point where we're satisfied with this world? Are we so satisfied with sin all around us that we don't really feel the need for a change? Jesus is telling us this morning, we must understand, we must recognize, we must know that we are erring that we are helpless, that we are condemned sinners. You know, the reason that Jesus saves us is not because we are so good. It's because he is so good. The reason he chooses to save us and to bless us in his work is not because we are so bad. It's because he is so good and our need is so great. You know, the incredible thing that is so wonderful to me is that Jesus saves us and then he makes us to reflect his image, even though we are so bad. is this possible? You know, if we know that we need to be we need to be at the measure of Christ when he comes. I know that there are a number of people in this room with varying sizes and heights. But if the measuring rod of perfection was placed right in the sanctuary. And if, for illustration, the measuring rod went all the way to the top of this ceiling, and if Jesus was to stand at that measuring rod, he would reach the very top because he's the standard. 
But if any one of us, no matter that we're varying heights, would come and stand at that measuring rod, not one of us would even come close to reaching the top. Is that right? Even though some of us are taller than others. The devil would love to have us think in our own minds that a title or a position or social status or educational or financial advantages in some way gives us an advantage with God. But we are all flat-footed at the, at the foot of the cross. And when we look up, we all have the same basic need. We need a Savior. So this sermon is as much for me as any other person. When we read in here this warning that Jesus has that we don't realize that we're wretched and poor and blind and naked. It's easy to think, now wait a minute, did I miss something? When we come to Christ, doesn't he fix whatever sin did to us so that we can now be sinless? Doesn't he make it so that my faith is strong enough and and now by my faith I can reach out and I I can overcome sin? Shouldn't I, be, shouldn't I be praising God for making me to be able to resist sin so that I can honor and glorify Him? There's something that we're missing. We're missing something. We're missing the fact that when I come to Christ and I am in Christ, it's not my perfection. It's not my righteousness. It's not my holiness. It's his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness. I am, I am an erring, helpless, condemned sinner. It's Christ that is all of those things, and he gives me his holiness. Imputes it to him. He gives it to me. His faithfulness now becomes mine. His perfection now becomes mine. But I am none of that. I am still an erring, helpless, condemned sinner. But Christ is all of those things. When I come to Christ, he gives me those things. But if I walk away from Christ... I can very quickly demonstrate that I am erring, that I am helpless, and that I'm a condemned sinner. But when I am in Christ, I have his holiness. How did I get it? How did I get that holiness? Turn over in Revelation 14. Revelation 14, Jesus gives us a little clue here. Revelation 14, verse 12. Jesus offers to us an opportunity to draw close to him. And when we respond, sometimes we refer to that as being in Christ. Now, I want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. 
But how many of you, how many of us, how many of us are in Christ? How many of us have that close relationship with him? Well, you might say, well, how can I know? Jesus told us in that scripture reading that we had today that we can't be in Christ unless we recognize and know that we are erring, helpless, and condemned sinner. Because if we don't recognize it, we won't sense a need for what he has to give us. So now let's look at this. How is it that we receive that holiness? Chapter 14, verse 3, Jesus describes those who have that close relationship with him as saints. Look at it, it says, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say here are those who keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. It doesn't say that. Have is not in there. It says, blessed, it says, those who keep the commandments and keep the faith of Jesus. Hebrews also tells us that the just shall live by faith. So this, this people not only keep Jesus' faith, but they live by Jesus' faith. So the incredible thing is, that Jesus wants to give us that faith. But how does he give it to us? How is it? If you turn back to chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus gives us a little clue. When he says in, in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me, Jesus is talking, gold tried in the fire. What is this gold tried in the fire? This gold is his faith. What faith? What faith is that? It's the exact faith that he had when he was on this earth that he used to overcome every single temptation the devil could throw at him. He was tempted in all points similar to ours and yet without sin. What is so important about faith? Why is it? Why can't I use my own faith? Well, if you know your own self well enough, you know that your faith in God has, weak, has been weak at times. In fact, sometimes perhaps not even existent. Faith is a connection with God. That's what God gives us faith for. Faith is a connection with God. And Jesus' faith was never broken. He maintained that relationship with, G, with his Father all the way through his life. But our faith has already been demonstrated that it's weak. We can't do it on our own. And so Jesus is telling us that even though you don't have the faith, I do and I will supply it to you so that there's no reason for you to be disconnected from the Father. And then he says of me, buy of me. Why does he say buy? The word buy itself gives you the in indication that it cost something. And it did. It cost God, everything. But there's also another reason why he uses the word buy. Sometimes we're willing to take things for free whether we want them or not. But if we have a real desire, 
and a need. And in this situation, let's just say that we know that our experience with Christ is up and it's down. There are times when we are just, wow, we are so close to God, and then there are some times when we don't even know where He is. And we're tired of it because we are becoming, we have been pushed around by sin, and we don't want to be. And now Jesus offers us a faith that has been tested and tried and has never failed. And we look at that and we start to sense our need. We need that kind of faith. And when we come to the point where our desire is so strong, we want to buy that faith. Jesus steps up and he says, I'm going to give it to you at no cost. It's already been paid. That's what God has done for you and for me. He has supplied the connection with heaven. It is not any longer a result of sin breaking us because Jesus has already defeated sin. Now there's one more ingredient that we need. And it's right in the same verse because it goes on and it says, Buy of me white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. It's not talking about a nakedness, a physical nakedness of the body. It's talking about that that sinful human nature. And it's saying that you're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. This is that uniform that I was talking about in the children's story. This is the uniform that every single Christian must have if they're going to be able to go to heaven. They've got to have this uniform of Christ's righteousness. That's what they have to have. How did Christ get this righteousness? Well, while he was on this earth, he came as a baby. And as he came as a baby, he had that connection with God as he started to grow. That connection grew stronger and stronger. And the Father came in to him and helped him develop that character so that by the time he came to full adulthood, he had a character reflecting his father's. Connected through faith. Satan tried to break the connection with him, but he couldn't. That's how Jesus developed his character on this earth under trials and and tribulations and temptations. Jesus gives us a little clue of that in John 17, 23, when he says, he says, he's praying and he says, I in them, he's talking about his disciples, us, I in them, and he's praying to the Father, and you in me that they may be one. Jesus is offering himself to come and give us his character. Just as the Father was in him developing that character, he is willing to come and offering to come into our lives and develop that character. Let's talk just a minute about how character is developed. If you take character back down to its smallest component, you're going to find that that component is going to be in the mind because that's where character is developed. And if you take it to that smallest component, that smallest component is a thought. And as you dwell on that thought, it goes into an attitude. 
An attitude is, it is expressed in an action. And you repeat the action long enough and it becomes a habit. And habits over time become character and character determines your destiny. So therefore you could come back and say character is a sum total of a person's life because it involves all of their thinking, all of their emotions, and all of their actions. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that he wants to give us his character. How can you give someone your character? How do you do that? And yet God has found a way to do that. He's found a way in which he, can, he, he will give us his character. How does he give us his character? Well, God requires something from us. God requires our cooperation because character formation revolves around the freedom of choice. God doesn't just put his character in you. He doesn't want robots. He wants people who resemble him in action, in thought, but also have the freedom to choose what they want. So he requires our cooperation. What does he require from us? How are we to cooperate with him? Well, the first thing he requires is he requires us to choose. I have a quote from Ministry of Healing, page 176, and it reads like this. God has given us the power of choice. It is ours to exercise. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot control our thoughts, our impulses. We cannot make ourselves pure, fit for God's service. But we can choose to serve God. We can give him our will by choice. Then he will work in us to will and do of his good pleasure. Thus, our whole nature will be brought under the control of Christ. How is it that Christ does it? He starts with a choice. But then what is this second thing that God asks us to cooperate with? The second thing that God asks and says he must have in order for you to have a character that's developed like him is he must have your effort. And you might say to yourself, oh, is that all? I've been trying all my life. I've been trying as hard as I can and I can't seem to do much of anything. What we have to understand is that not all effort is the same. You see, from the core, we are selfish. And so everything we do is tainted with selfishness. So every effort that I make is coming from the source of selfishness. But God, on the other hand, is unselfish. And everything he does is unselfish. So it's impossible for those two things to come together for a common goal. It can't happen. We cannot mix selfishness with unselfishness and have pure motives. Can't do it. 
So what has to happen is when I come to Christ and I, I invite him to have my heart, he takes my heart and he sanctifies my effort, setting it apart to accomplish a holy purpose. And then he gives it to me and he says, now use it. And now I have the privilege of cooperating with God. He's directing. I'm only providing the effort. Without him, I can do nothing. But with him, there is a huge, huge change. How does that work? Christ Object Lessons, page 312, tells us this. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. I, uh, I think that is, that is fantastic. God gives me two things that I need to develop a character. He gives me faith, which is that connection with God that will not be broken. I can only break it with my choice. Satan and sin cannot break it. And then he gives me the ingredients for a character like Christ. He allows Christ to live out his life in me. So now it's no longer I. What, what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is where our victory is coming from. But I've got good news for you. When you surrender your heart to Christ, God takes responsibility for you. He takes responsibility for you. In Philippians 1.6, it says God is going to finish the work that he's begun in you. And he's going to do it before Jesus comes. 2 Timothy 1.12 says that God is able to keep what has been committed to him until that day. What's been committed to him? We need to commit the keeping of our soul to him. He's able to keep it. So what that means is that when you look in the mirror and you say, I see an erring, helpless, condemned sinner, you can say, praise the Lord. But I don't have to stay that way. By a choice, God can turn this around. By a choice, he can give me the victory. By a choice, he'll give me the faith to overcome every single sin in my life. If there's a besetting sin in our hearts, and every one of us have it, God teaches us, he works with us, and he roots those things out victory by victory by victory. And where does he start? He starts right here in the mind and our thoughts. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy law do I meditate day and night. 
God is telling us that right there is where the battle of the great controversy exists, right in the, in the fuel for our thoughts. So as we go out, not in your own effort, but as we go out and God sanctifies our effort and we come up and we start to see things that would take our mind a different direction, we can yield our will to Christ right then and we say, Lord, we need the help. I know this isn't healthy for me to watch. I know this isn't healthy for me to read. I know this isn't healthy for me to listen to. I know this is not healthy because you are telling me I need the strength now and thank you for it. And God gives it to you that moment. And you know what? If that struggle comes back in five minutes, ten minutes, two minutes, go through that process all over again. And as you gain a habit of victory, your life will tell for it. God will change the actions in your life. Why? Because your thinking is different. Now he'll change your attitude and your attitude will be different. And the things that you used to like, you won't like. The things that you didn't like, you will start to like if it's for God. Instead of going back and with all these self-helps and say, I've got to stop liking this, whatever it is. Go to the Lord on your knees and say, Lord, you take the, you take the desire for this away. Amen. Christian life doesn't have to be one of gloom and doom. The Christian life is a life of victory. You don't have to fall. You don't have to because Christ has already paid the price. Christ has done that for us. He's developed the faith little by little all through his life until he has the full-blown faith that you and I need. He's developed that Christ-likeness in him, that, that righteousness within him, and now he's living it out in you. Hallelujah for that. You are not a defeated Christian. Not if you know that you are an erring, helpless, condemned sinner, saved by the blood of Christ. But when we start to take assumptions, when we start to take God for granted, God will not be trifled with. We are not growing in Christ. We are going the other way. As we grow in Christ, sin becomes more offensive to us than ever before. The closer we come to Christ, the farther away from sin we want to be. I don't know how the Lord has been speaking to you this morning. But the Lord is inviting you. Doesn't matter what you did last week. Doesn't matter what you did the week before or even this morning. God is inviting you to choose. To choose to know that you, first of all, are an erring, helpless, condemned sinner. But choosing to accept Christ's offer and to give you the faith that you need to be constantly connected to heaven and to give you the ingredients that you need to make a character like Christ by having him live out your life. Now, if that is you, then I want to invite you just to stand wherever you are. Just stand right wherever you are. And if you happen to have that little connect card right here, pull it out and take a look at it. In the very first one, if you are here and you want to be a part of this family of God, but you've never invited Jesus into your life, 
but you want to respond, then just check that box right there. If you recognize that you have been complacent as a Christian, you don't want to be lukewarm any longer. You want to give your will, you want to give your heart, you want to give your life to Christ, then check that box. And the last box, if you're wanting to commit totally to the Lord and engage in letting, not just preaching the message in word, but preaching it in in life, check that box. I want to pray for us. Father in heaven, you see us. We are in desperate need because we don't realize how much we need you, and that makes it even more desperate. But Lord, as we come closer to you, reveal to us more of the glory of Jesus in his life. Help us to think and meditate upon his life. Lord, even as we have invited you to come in, we know that we can't give you our hearts. We can't give you our emotions. We can't control our thoughts, but you can. And so we invite you to do that, and we claim that promise that you gave to us, that you would work in us both to will and do of your good pleasure. We claim that. We ask that you would sanctify our effort, and by the glory of God, may we put that effort to work. So, Father, I want to thank you for the faith of Jesus. I also want to thank you for the life of Jesus that is lived out in us. And as we adjust to living for him instead of trying to do things on our own, we ask for your mercy. But we also ask that you would give us that joy of knowing that we have been reconciled with you through Christ. Lord, may we not be sober and, and sad and wondering. But may we have confidence so that we can come before you boldly, making our requests known with thanksgiving. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.